You're listening to Three Makes Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Repnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. I'm back with another episode of Three Makes Baby in a pandemic. It's definitely weird times, but we carry on, and I'm really excited to share an episode today about known donation, and also we'll be touching on, spoiler alert, what it's like to be pregnant during a pandemic. Today, my guest, Sarah, is joining us. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on here. Um, it's, um, it's an honor. It's so nice to hear from people in different parts of the world, and you are from the UK? I am, yes, I'm from the UK. I live in London. London, yes. So I've never been to London, but I'm hoping to come uh, next year. So it's a great place. Yeah. You should definitely come and see it. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited. I'm really excited. I hope to meet you in person. So yeah, definitely. That would be really cool. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit about your story and what led to you using a donor. Um, okay. Well, my um, my husband and I have been um, trying to conceive for five and a half years. It'll be six years come January. Um, and for the last three and a half years of that, we've been doing IVF, um, which is a pretty long process. That's a long um, time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's covered five egg retrievals, the first of which um, we had a fresh transfer with. Uh, and then the rest of them have been banking cycles with then embryo transfers following. So we've had uh, four frozen embryo transfers. Um, I have never responded particularly well to uh, the stim meds and my ovaries are not particularly great. Um, so we've never made very many embryos. Uh, and then last year we had a bit of a nightmare year with like four cancelled cycles as my ovaries uh, failed to do what we were hoping they might do um which made it a whole lot more a lot whole lot harder and more time consuming um to make any embryos at all um and of the last double um banking batch of five blastocysts we got we pgs tested them and only one of them was, was normal um we transferred that one in february this year um but it didn't work um and i kind of knew thank you um i kind of knew going through last year that donor eggs was probably our next sensible option um and we decided after that last one failed that that was in fact what we were going to do um and we now have three genetically normal embryos um which were made from eggs donated by by my best friend um which is amazing. Um, yeah. And she lives four and a half thousand miles away in Canada. So um, she's yeah, in Canada. Thought, yeah, she's in Canada. We're in London. So the admin to sort that out was um, fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so we have those three waiting for us. Um, and we are waiting to transfer them now. So yeah. yeah, so at one point, at what point did you realize that your friend might be uh, an option for you? Uh, well, she she actually offered a couple of years ago um, mm-hmm. at a point that I was um, oh, just just having another problem um, at a point that I was trying to do a frozen embryo transfer, but the um, estrogen wasn't working for me and my lining wasn't thickening up and I had two cycles cancelled from that. And she was like, look, anytime you want my ovaries or my uterus, just, you know, just let me know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she didn't really mention it again and I didn't mention it again. Um, 
and then when earlier this spring when we were kind of thinking about donor eggs my husband and I had a conversation and we were like well look these are our options we could go for an anonymous donor but that would be outside the UK we could go for an unknown donor in the UK no idea what the availability is but look that is a possibility um or you know my best friend offered we could ask her oh wow that's a really tough decision what what did you eventually decide to do we actually decided to um to pursue an unknown donor in the uk um because partly because my friend is only a couple of years younger than me so she's what is she she must be 37 um so we were slightly concerned about that and though she has a couple of kids the youngest is six so we weren't sure whether um actually how much of an improvement in chances that would give us um so looking at it from a kind of purely okay what's going to get us there fastest this is just taking too long okay fine well our best chances statistically speaking, are going to be with a young, proven donor. Okay, so where did you find an anonymous donor? Through an agency here in London, we actually were matched with um, a donor who had donated before, and I think she's she was in her mid to late 20s, I think, uh, and we had an idea of what her response had been to her previous donation cycles, uh, and she sounded like a good match for me in terms of what her interests were and her level of education and what she looked like um although here we get very little information all of that information is described in words on a form it's not that we ever get a photo of this person mm. so you have no pictures of this donor you have not very much information and things how are they coming along are they going quickly that was kind of all progressing albeit slowly and then we heard that she was going on holiday um and therefore she couldn't be seen in the next month. And it was like, okay, fine, well, look, she has a life. She needs to live her life. This is not her priority in the same way that it's our priority. Mm -hmm. um, except that she was going to Thailand where there is Zika, which oh. meant that she, so by the time she got back, she wasn't going to be able to donate until three months afterwards. And yes. we were like, oh, good grief. Mm -hmm. Is there any more? Um, so at that point we were like, well, look, okay, this is a pause. Let's just double check that we're happy with this. Um, Mm, were you? And we were. Um, and if that had been the route we'd gone, then I would have been fine with it. Um, but in at that point, we did ask my best friend if she wouldn't mind going and having some uh, kind of usual fertility tests done, which she did. Oh, wow. She just took that on, huh? Oh, it was brilliant. It was just, it was like, she, she handled all the organization exactly how I would have done. Um, mm. And you know, she went to her GP and she tried to get uh, a referral, but then getting a referral into the fertility clinics in Vancouver is uh, not as fast as you might like. So she was like, oh, it's fine. Look, I'll just find somewhere across the border in the States and I'll go there. Mm -hmm. um, so she had various blood tests done. and then she. So just curious, where did she go across into the United States? Uh, she drove to Bellingham, I think, which I think is, was basically the closest IVF clinic to the border. Um, so they did, uh, an antral follicle count there, um, which was like 20 or something. Uh, and so that was good. And her AMH was good. Um, and the various other blood tests were good. And my doctor, uh, was like, yep, she looks like a really good donor. And the fact that you're close friends and the reasons that you're giving me for wanting her to be your donor yes those are good enough to satisfy the hfea for them to make um 
an exception for the fact oh. that she's 37 rather than 35. Okay, good. So they, you, they considered that you wanted to use your friend and yes, they gave you that. That's nice. Yeah, it was really good. Um, I mean, from our, at this point we were kind of, I see, I didn't want to ask her to start that process until we were, my husband and I were sure that that was mm-hmm. definitely something we wanted to do because I didn't want to kind of start her off and then kind of go, oh, no, well, actually, thanks. You put all this time into it, but actually we've decided not to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we'd we had um, quite a lot of conversations about this um, at that point, and we'd seen the counsellor from our clinic. Um, and I think the key things for us were that if we if we had my friend as a donor, she would be, you know, that she's she's somebody who is in my life she's four and a half thousand miles away but mm-hmm. we skype every month and we do see each other from time to time um and for us it means that it removes the unknowns it means that when we're um answering the whole so where did i come from question from whatever child hopefully comes out of this we mm-hmm. can say well it's this person here here's a photo of her here, mm-hmm. You see her on FaceTime when we when we mm-hmm. chat. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's her. It's not mm-hmm. um, a mystery. It's, it's not a mystery. It's not mm-hmm. a kind lady about whom you could imagine all sorts of good mm-hmm. or bad things or paint some mm-hmm. kind of imaginary picture of someone who's one thing and then find out later that uh, they're completely different because you know, right. they're human and they don't exist in your only in your head. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so it started to feel. Um, like an option that felt better for you at this yeah. point? Um, it had always, for me, it had always felt like it would be a really lovely thing and something that I would want to do. I think my husband was more nervous about it because he was worried uh, about what it might do to our friendship, um, if it worked okay. or if it didn't work. Um, and, um, but I was always... I was always very confident that actually that would be fine. She and mm-hmm. I are very similar in terms of being uh, pragmatic and sensible. And I was confident that we would be able to figure out whatever issues we came across. Yeah. And you've um, known each other a long time, right? How many years? Ah, oh, there's a question. Um, I think we've known each other since 2003. Mm-hmm. So I think it's enough time to know somebody pretty well, 15 years or so. So, and did you at one time live in the same city, live close to each other? Um, yes. In fact, we were uh, flatmates. She was uh, studying in London for three years, I think. Uh, and we were, we lived together as flatmates for two years of that. Um, so it's actually only the three years that she was in London that we've actually seen each other regularly. The rest of the time has been uh, kind of transatlantic phone calls and Skype when that was finally invented. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> that's nice. Um, yeah. yeah. And then she she was bridesmaid at my wedding uh, and we've been across there a couple of times now and she's been back here. Yeah. Have you had uh, lots of conversations with her about, you know, your, this process about moving forward, how you will, the role you'll have in each other's lives or continue to have, how it might change and and how your child will you know, relate to her, what she might call, your child might call her, things like that? 
Yes, um, we had. Uh, so we went to over to Canada in September when she was doing the um, egg retrieval cycle. Um, so we we had an Airbnb basically around the corner from her house, and we just we spent a lot of time just hanging out. Um, and I went with her to the scans every day. So we had time in the car to chat, and then just one evening, I. Uh, she and I and my husband just kind of sat and worked through a list of questions, um, a list of questions from Three Makes Baby and, um, oh. <laughs> and a few more that my counsellor had suggested we work through. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was good. I have to say it was useful to have a list of things as a kind of like, right, here are the things we have to discuss. Let's go through them one by one rather than it being just kind of things either of us were bringing up. Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was great. She was very much of the view that, look, it's your kid. It is wholly your kid, and you mm-hmm. do what you like. Just make sure you get them vaccinated, and you can do <laughs> and you can do what you like. Um, mm-hmm. So she was very much a kind of like, look, this 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 could just be it. Um, mm-hmm. I give you these eggs, and you go away and do what you like with them, and and we go from there. Um, we, my husband and I, were very. Um, thought very much that we wanted for there to be more than that. Um, she has two kids who will be half siblings genetically to mm-hmm. um, our child, hopefully. So um, I would like them to know each other. Um, it's pretty likely that we'll probably only have one kid. I know we have three embryos, but the chances of all th- at least two of them taking seem very slim at this point so um plus i'm 40 so we don't have masses of time um so we will probably only have one and um actually one of the big things that i've taken from listening to the uh listening to ali on the half of me podcast is um the this this huge added bonus that donor conceived adults have found in finding their genetic half siblings Mm -hmm. so i'm hoping that they will i mean who knows whether they'll like each other but um they will definitely have an opportunity to know each other um to decide whether they want to like each other or not yeah exactly um (laughs) and for for our child definitely to know my friend as their um egg donor Mm um i mean it's kind of I think at the time that we were having the conversations, I was wanting to kind of make sure I had absolutely everything sorted out and there was a name for everything and we had a structure mm-hmm. and we knew exactly how it was going to be, but actually life is not like that. So mm-hmm. we kind of, we decided that something like cousins was probably what we were aiming for. Um, and her kids have cousins who live out of state. So um, that's not a kind of unfamiliar kind of thing for them. Mm-hmm. Um and I think at this point she will be my my friend will be aunt auntie to our kid, but we'll mm-hmm. kind of take that as it comes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, but I'm kind of hoping that it means that our families will be closer than they would otherwise have been. Um, and my husband and I get on really well with her parents. Um, they're lovely, and they've always been very generous. And we've met up with. I've met up with her parents here when they were in town on their way through um, Mm -hmm. and we've spent time with them in Canada. So um, I'm hoping that it'll be a good, good kind of link up. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that that gives your children, your child, the choice of how they want to share their story. So if they want to share their story with, um, you know, just casual acquaintances or 
people they're having a casual conversation with, they might say, you know, that these are my cousins and this is my aunt. And yep. they ask, well, where do you get this trait? Well, I get it from my aunt, you know? And so they have that option of, of keeping the story or the narrative set with more in the line of, of what's common yes. um, and, what's, and what's more normalized, let's say, if they would like. And then if they have in more clo- in closer relationships or even with each other, if they decide they want to refer to each other as siblings, they um, have that choice at some point. So it kind of gives them some flexibility in how they can describe their family. Um, I yes. say they, and I know you just said you you think you might just have one. Um, but I mean, if we get more than one, then amazing. But um, <laughs> yeah, at yeah. this point, one would be one would be well, enough. One would be enough. And so yes, yeah, so I like that. And also, I know that in just talking with donor conceived adults when we first start out as, I mean, when a parent first starts out to talk to their children and, and defines the roles, like kind of like you have decided aunt and cousin, and that gives some structure for when they're little and some comprehension and a concept for them to, to understand as they grow into adulthood and beyond, then they, they'll decide what works for them best. And they may stick with yeah. it. They may stick with cousin and aunt, or they may, they may try, change their mind and, and call it what makes sense that, to them. And so I think that's always been a great, um, I know Wendy Kramer was one of the first people to point that out and say, you know, we, we tend as parents, when she was talking about herself as a donor conceived parent, she said, we tend as parents to think we can define those relationships, but it's ultimately their decision. Um, and they will, they will call that person, whatever makes sense to them as they get older. And so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting because one of the things, um, one of the things that I think I was struggling with when I was kind of thinking through actually how do I want to define this is that there aren't, there isn't a language, there aren't the words, there aren't the kind That's of, right. yep. there, it just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. So it's, you know, there is no word that explains it more than kind of egg donor and that's really impersonal. Um, it is. Exactly. You're right. And so there is no word. And so because of that, you know, there's a lot of flexibility and there's so many different words that people use and that can cause confusion. It can cause misunderstanding. Sometimes it can cause some re- negative feelings amongst and in, inside the community because what one person may call a donor, a donor, and the other person may call it the donor, a biological father. Um, the other person may call the, that person they're just by their name or, yep. or, or even maybe father. And so there's so many different, and this is in the case of sperm donation. So more than likely they will follow the, the your lead and whatever yeah. you set down will be what becomes normal to them. That's their story. That's their narrative. And that will feel comfortable to them. So, yeah. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me any challenges you see as having your friend. I know you said your husband mentioned just that it might affect your friendship. I, I mean, I think there's so much that we just, we have no idea how it, what's going to happen and how, my husband and I in the first instant at least would even try and deal with it. Um, she's been, she was very clear that anything is our decision. And we talked about testing in pregnancy and what happens if, um, Oh, I don't know. The baby has some condition that's incompatible with, with life. And she's like, look, it's, it's entirely your decision. I'm not going to weigh in on that. Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm, and we will have our 
kids vaccinated that's not something that we're <laughs> disagreeing you're not going to change your mind on that one no I'm not going to change my mind on that one but yeah um I think I think that um I am confident enough in our friendship and in who she is and in who we are that um we will be able to talk out whatever the issue is um and come to some kind of conclusion um Mm -hmm. we're not miles apart in our kind of world view so i don't think i don't think we're going to have any kind of massive disagreements about anything um i suspect if we do it'll be smaller things i don't know yeah so do you think you plan to spend some time with her so your families can spend time together and get to know each other absolutely yes it's going to do absolutely nothing for the ozone layer us flowing back and forth together, <laughs> yeah. But it's, <laughs> yeah. Um, yes absolutely yeah. okay and then do you think that she would ever be interested in coming on the podcast as well and you know maybe having both of you on to talk about uh, any other you know challenges or thoughts or feelings that have come up I do not know I would have to ask her yeah it'd be interesting to hear from both sides and you know, I think it gives people an understanding and an inside view on known donation and what yes. that can look and feel like. I think that can be a lot, really scary for a lot of people. And I know doctors in general in the U.S., um, for the most part, at least now, just don't encourage it. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think that, um, I think there's some misconceptions um, about doctors communicating and telling people that known donation is, um, I've actually heard it be described as too complicated or there's problems involved. And I think that's not the full picture. I, no. I think that they're taking snippets of stories and extrapolating it out into a generalization. So um, I do like to, I would like to present more known donation situations so people can understand what that looks and feels like. Over here, open adoption is very common. And so families have found a way to to really make that work. And it's a really can be a beautiful thing for the child. So yeah. 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 That would be interesting. I think it would be, I think it could be maybe interesting if at the point that we actually have a baby from it, when there's, okay, yeah, there's, there's an actual physical real person, maybe that would kind of focus. That makes sense. Sure. I'm trying to think. I suppose that one of the things I found is that, um, even when I have thought something through and kind of thought over it a lot and kind of come to a point that I'm comfortable with something, um, there's always somehow something always happens to then challenge that or cause me to kind of go through it all again. Um, and I think, uh, so we were, we were kind of putting all of the donor admin in place in May and my friend had had all the testing done and we were kind of getting to a point where it was like, okay, what's the timetable going to be? Um, and I miraculously suddenly found I was pregnant, um, completely naturally, which was a surprise. Um, uh, which was weird because suddenly the path had changed and suddenly there was a kind of, ah, but I thought I was about to get donor eggs and I thought I was going to have a genetic upgrade then because there's a whole bunch of things in my background that do not exist in her background in terms of cancer and stuff um so so I had to let go of that and then and then I miscarried and then all over again I was having to face the loss of 
a genetic child only this time it was an actual genetic baby and that mm. that is the only baby that I will have that will be genetically half me so oh, it's wow. kind how of how far along were you uh, I it was at the nine week scan that we found that so it was a missed miscarriage um so the baby had only got to kind of seven and a half um okay. so it's kind of I don't know I think it's just a thought that even when you think you're fine with something it's still going to be something that comes up again and again and again and something will happen and it'll make you kind of think about it all over um and so many twists of, and turns for you huh. yeah it feels a bit like really yeah, it was horrible um it feels a bit like fertility bingo mm. you know I've mm. I've had a cyst and that's cancelled a cycle I've had an embryo that failed to thaw and mm. I've had ovaries that don't respond and I've had a cancellation for this and a cancellation for that and I've had this and that and oh and now I've had a miscarriage and surely surely this is a full house by now and surely I get the baby at this point but um mm no not yet um mm -hmm. what's helped you get through it all emotionally um hmm. i think talking with people who are also going through it yeah. um my real life friends have been some of them have been better than others some of them um just don't know what to say and mm. have not really any idea and to as to how to kind of help um i do have a couple of friends who are very good and they just check in on me and they haven't had massive fertility issues and they don't know how any of this works but they just keep checking in on me um, but i have a really good close circle of people who most of whom i've never actually met but i have met through the internet and they exist in my phone and we chat the mm. whole time and they they know everything that i've gone through and they are always there and they are mm. always supportive Mm -hmm. um so i think that's probably the best thing that's mm -hmm. helped um oh, meditation making sure i get enough sleep uh doing yoga um i have recently started taking anti-anxiety meds and that is making a massive difference um good. yeah good uh which is not something i want to be on long term but in the short term so that i'm not fighting my own head the whole time is really helping absolutely yeah, absolutely. That's all of those things that you mentioned are wonderful. And, you know, meditation and mindfulness is something I really encourage for the women and men that I work with. And it's, it's hard, but it's such a, it's something that's just like exercise or learning a new skill or playing an instrument. You do have to practice it. It is yeah, something you absolutely. have to be dedicated to for a while consistently. Yep. And once you practice it over and over, then you will have changes in your brain because state changes lead to trait changes. I've, yeah, I've felt that there was a, I, my run streak on Headspace at one point was two years, um, which was, I mean, there were a couple of cheats in that, but um, it was, I definitely feel it when I haven't been meditating so regularly. Um, and I have definitely felt it when, um, I have been practicing more and, you know, it appears in my mind in the middle of the day and I start noting and it just, it gives just a bit of distance between me and my thoughts and it makes it easier to deal with. Sure does. Um, so yeah, great, I would definitely great. recommend that. Great point. Such a great point. And you use Headspace? Yes, I do. Okay. Is that an app? It or? is an app. Um, okay. I 
think you have to pay to it for it to get to most of them, but there are different mm -hmm. um, packs for different things. So the uh, anxiety pack is really good. I like that one and I keep doing it. There's also a pregnancy pack, which maybe I'll get to do one mm. day. Uh, and there's yeah. one to do with sleep. And actually the sleep casts are great. So they're um, basically sleep stories. So I tend to run one of those if I wake up in the middle of the night. And I, the one I like is a story about, um, oh, a bunch of cats who live on boats in a marina. And it's mm -hmm. brilliant because it's, it's the same cats some of the same cats in a different order every night and it's told in such a kind of soft way that it just lulls me back to sleep which is great yeah 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 and so you can start out with visualizations and just like that where someone's kind of talking you through um your breathing or a yep. story or just an, something that you're imagining in your mind so that's definitely a good way to start and then with um, people sometimes don't think of that as meditation, but it is, it's, it's guided imagery or visualization. And that's definitely a, a type of mindfulness. So that's, it is one of the most amazing things you can do for yourself when you're going through infertility, because infertility puts you in the past and in the future so much yep. that it can drive you crazy. So uh, staying, trying to stay in the, so mindfulness is just paying attention to the moment you're in. I'm so glad you brought that up. I really am, that's, that's great. Well, so much has happened since I spoke with Sarah several months ago, it was last fall, that I wanted to touch base with her again and get an update to see where she's at now. I think it gives you a view of the whole process of infertility and what that looks like. But also, Sarah has some really good news to share with you. She's pregnant and I know she wanted to tell you how things have been since we last spoke and share with you what it's like to be pregnant in a pandemic. Really interesting listening back to this um, from when we recorded it in October last year um, in that the biggest thing that's changed is that a month and a half after we spoke, um, we had our first embryo transfer with one of the PGS tested embryos from our donor egg round. Um, and it worked. It actually worked, um, which was, <laughs> which was so crazy. Um, after so much failure, for it actually to have worked was just insane. Um, so listening back, I don't think I don't think anything has changed in my mind around donor conception. I'm still comfortable with the decisions we've made, and we haven't come to any problems yet. When Sarah reflected upon the journey, she told me how all-consuming fertility treatments were. Um, what does strike me is how far away I am from that now. I was so completely buried in infertility and treatment and project managing my life and all the potential meds and protocols and dates. And I knew, I knew my entire history at the drop of a hat. And I really was struck by the hope that her story brings to those who have been on a long infertility journey. The biggest thing then was that we didn't know if it was ever going to work. We were hoping and hoping and hoping, but with so much failure behind us that the chances of it working the first time seemed very slim. Um, so yeah, I'm now 19 weeks pregnant. We have the 20 week scan next week. And so far it seems to be going okay. Um, don't feel like I'm in the normal pregnant person world by any stretch of the imagination. Sarah shared with me that being pregnant in a pandemic, she feels that many people are in a worse position 
with treatment rounds being canceled and not knowing if they're going to be able to get pregnant. So she definitely feels grateful. Um, she also feels that just having gone through infertility it was so socially isolating that in a way this doesn't feel a lot different. Um, she's also an introvert, so the combination of the two, I think, has made you know being in quarantine, so to speak, easier. Um, she does say that the hardest part was she was just going to announce their pregnancy, and that's when everyone was in lockdown. So she wasn't able to come out and enjoy the aspects of being pregnant, of making the announcement, of having that social positive in her life. And so that has been, you know, a difficult thing to accept, but that, you know, she's adjusted to a new normal. And in a way, infertility prepared her for this. Um, still feels a bit weird. And there's still so much baggage around what we've been through and how and how we got to where we are that affects how how we're experiencing this, I guess, how we approach each, how we approach each scan. It, it weights the experience. Um, but I'm getting comfortable with it. It's, it's fading. It's definitely fading. It's not something I want to forget all of the detail of, but I'm happy that it's not so immediate and so present. It's, um, that's where we are. I'm sure there are many of you out there that can relate to pregnancy in a pandemic after infertility. If you have more you would like to share, please do reach out to me to be a podcast guest or interact with me on social media on Instagram. Also, remember that you can get a copy of my book or my newly published workbook, The Three Makes Baby Workbook, on Amazon.com. And the workbook is a companion guide to the book. So that means it's a place where you can write down, you can journal, you can take self quizzes, you can make photocopies of that for your husband or your partner, and they can take the quizzes as well to help you walk through, like Sarah did with her known donor, uh, with her friend, different questions and different topics that you might want to just communicate about. So you can always find me on social media at Jana Rupnow LPC and have a great day and I'll be back soon.